poet Robert Browning once wrote, God is in his heaven. All is right with the world. But I think we have to wonder what perspective Browning wrote these words from, because, especially for us, all does not seem right with the world. As we look at it, uh, we see disease, we see injustice and violence and destruction. We see that sin and evil are obviously alive and present in our world. And, and we all know that things are not as they should be. And, st- and so instead of agreeing with Browning that all is right with the world, uh, we would probably be more inclined to side with the guy who wrote this limerick. He wrote, God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. Might chuckle at that poem, but deep down inside, we know that this present world scene is nothing to laugh at, uh, because man is not in every day, in every way, getting better and better. Is our world out of control? How should we view the present world chaos? One wife said to her husband, Shall we check the news before supper and get indigestion, or wait until later and have insomnia? Should we sink into depression and despair? Should we try to ignore the world and its news and stick our head in the sand like an ostrich? Well, I believe Psalm 2 gives us the answer to those questions because in it, the author, King David, views the rebellion of the nations against God. He looks at the chaos in the world scene of his day and he gives us hope. Even though the world scene looks as if God has taken an extended vacation, David shows us that God's plans have not failed and that they will not fail. He reminds us that everything is under his sovereign control and that he will ultimately triumph in his ordained time. And so David appeals to the rebellious nations to bow before the Almighty God while they still have time. Psalm chapter 2, we're going to read all 12 verses, and I hope that we're going to be encouraged and given hope by Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, 
Look at this entire psalm or song, and you'll see it's structured into four verses. Or you could say this is a dramatic presentation presented in four acts, like a play. In Act 1, verses 1 through 3, David raises the question about chaos in the world, and the kings and the rulers come forth in a chorus to say their lines. In Act 2, verses 4 through 6, God calmly sits upon his throne in heaven, and he speaks against these rulers. In Act 3, verses 7 through 9, God's anointed one speaks and reveals God's decree or predetermined plan for dealing with man's rebellion. And then in Act 4, verses 10 through 12, the psalmist speaks out again, giving a closing appeal in light of the previous acts. And so for you and I today to understand the message of the psalm, I believe we can group Act 2 and 3 together so that overall we understand that the psalmist is essentially saying three main things. So let's look at those three main things today. First of all, the nations have rebelled against God. That's the first thing, verses 1 through 3. The nations have rebelled against God. And you've probably noticed that there are different applications uh, for this psalm because on one level, it applies to King David. The, The schemes of these rulers against the Lord and his anointed are rooted in a time in David's reign when some of the nations who were subject to him sought to rebel. And David, the Lord's anointed king over his people, Israel, writes this song to show the folly of this rebellion against God's anointed king because of the promises God had made to that king. So on one level, verses 1 through 3 refer to those rebel kings and their attempts to shake off David's rule over them. But it is also obvious that this psalm goes far beyond David's experience. It's ultimately fulfilled only in God's anointed, the Messiah. God's son, who is also David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, very remarkable that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes this psalm not only about himself, but in a much deeper and more complete way, Jesus. And just as these kings rebelled against King David, so all men have rebelled against King Jesus. So those of you who are always hunting for application, there you have it. All men have rebelled against King Jesus. And the Bible teaches us two main things about our own rebellion and the rebellion of the nations. First of all, Satan is the author of this rebellion. Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 14 describes the rebellion of Satan in heaven against God. When he, when he fell, he led a portion of the angels with him. And under his authority... These demons now wage war against God and the righteous angels. And so the world was created as the theater for this great conflict to take place. Man is created in the image of God. He's placed on earth to reflect God's image and rule as his representative over his creation. But the scriptures also teach that all people, including you and I, have followed Satan in his rebellion against God. Biblically, when Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation and disobeyed God, the human race fell into sin and we came under God's judgment. And then the rebellion, uh, as we read the story, took on an organized form at the Tower of Babel, when proud men came together to build a tower into heaven to make a name for themselves. 
And when that happened, the Lord confused their languages and scattered them, which was the beginning of the nations. And so the pride of those at Babel who sought to make a name for themselves was diluted by being divided among the various nations of the earth. But Satan works through the pride of world rulers to weaken the nations through conflict and to keep them from submitting to God. He doesn't want that. And as biblical prophecy shows, in the end times, the nations will come together under a single world ruler in defiance of the Lord and his anointed. And Satan is the main force behind this world ruler, otherwise called the Antichrist. But even in his curse upon the serpent, God pointed to the way of redemption that he had planned for fallen men. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, referring to the woman's seed, will crush your head, referring to the serpent, and you will strike his heel. Messiah Jesus, born of a woman, would be struck on the heel by Satan in death as the sin-bearer for the fallen race. But he would crush Satan upon the head in his triumphant victory over sin and death in his resurrection from the grave. By bringing people from every nation under the lordship of God's anointed Jesus, the rebellion of Satan is thwarted. Thus, in his eternal decree, the the Father invites the Son, in verse 8, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So, either through the willing submission to the message of the gospel now, or through our forced subjection under the rod of the Messiah when he comes to judge the nations, the rebellion will be ended. The nations have rebelled against God, and that includes you and I. And that's the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3. Meanwhile, where is God in all of this rebellion? And where is God today? Is he sleeping? Has he lost control of the world? No. The psalmist goes on to show that even though the nations have rebelled against God, God is sovereign. Verses 4 through 9. God is sovereign, which means he is still in control over all things. In fact, as we read this psalm, God doesn't even get up from his throne to deal with the vain schemes of the rebellious king. Verse 4 says, The one in heaven, or the one enthroned in heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This doesn't mean that God gets a a kick out of man's rebellion or his devastating results. Rather, God's laughter here shows the folly of rebelling against him. It shows us that God has a calm assurance in the face of man's rebellion. Mighty men rise up and proudly think they're so great and powerful. And in the face of that, God laughs. He essentially says, you've got to be kidding. Who is puny man to try to stand against the sovereign God? He removes kings and establishes kingdoms according to his will. The mighty Nebuchadnezzar, remember, the greatest ruler on earth in his day, grew proud, and he attributed greatness to himself. And we know that God humbled him with a strange disease, so he lived in the fields, he ate grass like a beast, until he learned that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, a little bit later in history, when he experienced success at the height of his power, is reported to have said, I make circumstances. God laughs. Oh, really? God lets him go on for a while. Then in verse 5 it says, He rebuked him in his anger and terrified him in his wrath, and Napoleon was no more. Did you know that God's not worried about man's rebellion against him? All throughout history, he hasn't been worried. Even now, he's not worried. He isn't sitting on the edge of heaven, biting his nails and saying, Oh my, what am I going to do about this? No. He lets man go on for a while in his rebellion, but then his anger and his judgment will come, and man's proud plans will come to nothing. And so the psalmist shows us that God is sovereign, verses 4 through 6, and that he has a predetermined plan to deal with man's rebellion, verses 7 through 9. And that plan centers on a person and the power of God's Messiah, his anointed one. In verse 7, we see, obviously, goes beyond David to Christ. This is a verse that's quoted several times in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. Now, I know it's hard for us as humans to understand God fully and to understand the Trinity, but the Scriptures describe the relationship between the first and the second persons of the Trinity as Father and Son. This doesn't imply any inequality or that there was a point in time in which Jesus was begotten of the Father. The Scriptures teach, and Orthodox theologians for centuries have agreed, that Jesus is eternally the unique Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and God's predetermined plan for dealing with man's rebellion involves the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, whom God sent into the world to pay the penalty for man's rebellion, he died according to the predetermined plan of God at the hands of godless men. But God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, where he's now waiting to return with power. That's the second part of God's plan, which is mentioned here in verses 8 and 9. That Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, will return bodily in his, in, to the earth in power and glory to crush all opposition and to reign in righteousness from David's throne. John describes his vision of the Lord Jesus in that great day in Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 through 16. Listen to this. It says, He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 20 says that at the end of Christ's 1,000-year reign, Satan and all who followed him will be thrown into the lake of fire where they'll be tormented forever. And so this is God's plan for dealing with rebellious man and with Satan and his forces. His plan involves the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, who's going to return to earth in power to end all rebellion and to reign in righteousness. And so... How should you and I respond to this fact? Well, the psalmist tells us how. He says, verses 10 through 12, we must submit to God and his anointed. And just to remind you, it's not just the proud kings of David's day who have rebelled against the Lord and his anointed. 
Again, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. And so we all, like verse 3 in Psalm 2 said toward God, say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. In other words, you and I say, I'll do it my way. Well, at first glance, you would have thought that everyone would welcome God's Messiah who came to save us from our sins. But the issue isn't just about salvation. In other words, Jesus didn't come to save us so that we could get a free ticket to heaven and then go our own way. The issue here is one of lordship, of kingship. The Lord's anointed is the king who will reign. If not by our willing submission now, then by forced submission when he comes again. He doesn't take second place to anyone. Every knee shall bow, the scripture says. So verses 10 through 12 apply to all of us here. Um, All of us show discernment and take warning that all of us, you and I, should bow in submission and fear before God and give the kiss of respect and honor to His Son. The picture here is that of bowing and expressing submission before a monarch so as not to incur His displeasure. You must submit to Christ as Savior and Lord before he returns in judgment, the psalm says, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. And so I hope what you're hearing here is the urgency of submitting to Christ. I hope you're hearing the urgency of that. And it's expressed in a phrase later in the verse that says, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. So this is a word of warning for us. The signs of our times point us to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know the first time that he came in mercy to save, but that the second time when he comes, he will come in wrath to judge. And so it's a word of warning. And and some of you might say, well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. You don't know that. It could happen at any time. And, And there's no guarantee that you have another day to live on this earth. And I know that that sounds dramatic, But it's true. Our days are numbered by the Lord. We don't know how much time we have. And so we should take this warning. We should submit to the Lord Jesus. And if we don't do that before we die, Hebrews 9.27 says, we will face his judgment. As commentator Matthew Henry put it, those that will not bow shall break. In closing, Uh, The nations have rebelled against God, and our world is in chaos. This is nothing new. Uh, We can't find peace and safety anywhere in this world, but we can find it in Christ. Many years ago, uh, there was a retired couple, and they were alarmed by the threat of nuclear war at that time, and so they studied all the inhabited places on earth, looking for the place where they could most likely retire and escape the threat of war. So this couple studied, they traveled, they traveled, they studied. Finally, they found what they thought was the perfect place. It was a small, obscure island off the coast of South America. And so they moved to the Falkland Islands, right before Britain invaded to reclaim that territory from Argentina. 
They couldn't escape. World chaos uh, will not cease. It's going to continue in our day. And scripture says it will increase as Jesus' coming draws closer and closer. And so if we can't escape it, what can we do? Well, I believe the last line of the psalm is God's gracious invitation to you and I. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so don't run from God. Run to him. Derek Kidner aptly says, if there is no refuge from him, uh, it is only found in him. So run to him. And as we see the chaos in our world, it's possible for us to find peace and to be blessed by taking our refuge in our God. He has the proud rebellion of wicked men under his control. And if you study church history, you see that the early church took refuge in him by praying Psalm 2 as they faced persecution. And so for you and I in troubled times, when it looks as if the enemy is winning, we can do the same. And so let's join the early church in doing everything we can to make Christ the Lord over all the nations, to make Christ the Lord over all of our relationships and all that we are, so that whatever may come, whatever may happen to us, our sovereign God will ultimately triumph.